the Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Welcome indeed. Well, tonight you're going to hear a lot from our market commentator, Magnus Haystack, not just because he's a fascinating guy, but uh, we have got a webinar coming up tomorrow. Uh, I'm mentioned to the business community that we'll be talking with Magnus uh, about the way ahead after the past week. He is an independent financial advisor and uh, we had, well, I think we last count we had like 1,500 people who'd registered for it. So we're going to get an idea from Magnus how, what he's going to be talking about tomorrow and then some insights into the way he sees uh, the world ahead. What I like about Magnus is that he has got no bosses. He is the, he's the founder of the company. He has the independence. He makes a decision on exactly what he wants to talk about and how he wants to talk about it. And he speaks from the heart. And my goodness, he's been right for the last whew, 10 years. He's been saying, diversify your portfolio, find assets outside of this little half a percent, which we live in called South Africa. And uh, he, well, his clients have been very happy about it, but we'll find out more about that in a little while. Also, on a similar subject, we're going to talk to Yaki Salir later this evening. Yaki is the author of a book on South Africa. It was called Fate of the Nation. It was published just before the uh, Sir Ramaphosa election uh, in 2017. And in that he said that everything, the, the whole future of South Africa depended on what happened in 2017. He then gave us three scenarios on how the country was likely to develop. Uh, and one of those scenarios was a middle road, a Bafana Bafana road. But he also saw a high road for South Africa, a little bit like uh, the way that Clem Santa talks, being a split in the ANC. Now, everything that's gone on in the last week with the uh, – turbulence that we've had, which appears uh, from all the evidence we've received, and certainly from the interviews we had last week from people on the ground in KwaZulu-Natal, is that it was organized, and it was organized from people within the ANC. So Yaki is on the spot tonight to tell us whether the ANC is likely to split, which might open the way for the high road scenario. And then we'll also be talking, uh, or rather my colleague, Justin Rowe Roberts, will be talking uh, with Chris Logan, one of the top investment analysts in South Africa, about a company that Chris has been following called Carew. Justin, before we talk markets or news, uh, Chris has really been on the money with this one. It's a, a company that's unusual for South Africa, really, being uh, listed previously on the JSE and, and now on NASDAQ in America. Yes, Alec. Carew, formerly CarTrack. It's a software as a service business. Um, it started uh, just tracking vehicles as anti-theft, has moved up the uh, the value chain. And Chris is very bullish. Very surprising that so few analysts in South Africa follow the stock, given its outperformance in the last five years. And then, of course, the other big bit of news for BizNews portfolio members is the Results that came out, the quarterly results that came out last night from Netflix, I was quite happy with them, but it appears, and Netflix, by the way, is in the business portfolio, which has been a phenomenal performer. Um, over the past seven years, we've achieved something like 25% growth per annum. Well, it's gone from $200,000 to $700,000. It gives you an idea of the power of compound growth. But uh, we will be hearing more about the Netflix results from our partners in London at the Financial Times of London. Of course, we uh, like to bring you that international news insight every day just after this local uh, news and market. So there's a heck of a lot coming up in the program uh, tonight. I hope that you enjoy it and you know, drop us a line at uh, alec at biznews.com if you've got ideas on what you feel that we should be covering. But uh, enough from me. Let's now pick up with the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. 
the daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, let's see what's been going on in the news headlines today. Here's Biz News's Nadia Swart. The week of deadly riots in South Africa could cost the country about 50 billion rand in lost output, while 150,000 jobs have been placed at risk, the presidency said, citing estimates from the South African Property Owners Association. About 200 malls were targeted and some 3,000 shops were looted during the protests, while 200 banks and post offices were vandalized, acting minister in the presidency, Kumbuzo Nchaveni, told reporters. In a meeting with more than 90 chief executives and industry leaders on Tuesday, President Soro Maposa conceded that his administration was inadequately prepared to deal with the scale of the unrest and the security forces did not respond quickly enough. Pfizer Inc. has reached an agreement to start production of its COVID-19 vaccine at a facility in Cape Town in an effort to deliver more than 100 million doses annually to African nations. Pfizer and its German vaccine partner, BioNTech, said Wednesday that they had signed a letter of intent with the BioVac Institute, a company partially owned by the South African government, to manufacture the shots. The companies expect to bring BioVac's Cape Town-based facility into the fold of their broader coronavirus vaccine supply chain by the end of 2021 and to begin producing finished doses in 2022. A study has found that Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine is much less effective against the Delta and Lambda variants than against the original virus. This is according to the New York Times which reported that the lab-based findings, which have not been peer-reviewed or published in a scientific journal, suggest that the need that there will be a need for a second dose for the 13 million people who have received the inoculation. The authors of the study recommended an mRNA vaccine made by Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna as the second shot. These results contrast those from smaller studies published by J&J earlier this month that suggested a single dose of its vaccine is effective against Delta even eight months after inoculation. That's an interesting story that uh, the J&J is, it was the one that I suppose most people in South Africa wanted to get when they went for a vaccine because it's just a one-off, whereas Pfizer, you know you're getting it twice. Mm. So it doesn't seem as though uh, this Delta variant is is as much, uh, or that J&J is as much as a protection to Delta as as presumed. But I guess we're learning as we go along, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, the studies. yes. And, and contrasting ones all the time. So it's hard to say at this point. It's an interesting uh, number as well of 50 billion rand that was uh, used for or that, that has now been the estimate of the damage of the past week. Just to put that in context, if you take everybody who paid income tax last year, so that's that PAYE, that big deduction that comes off your paycheck every month. If you took 10 cents in every rand, for what you paid in the whole of last year, that will be enough to pay for the damage. It's a big hit, isn't it? It's really – then on massive. top of that, you add another 40 cents in the rand that goes to uh, social grants, and you can see where your income tax ends up. really yeah. is quite it's, unbalanced it's in South Africa. It's to Well, let's hear what's going on with the markets today. Justin Rowe Roberts. Cool, Alec. The JSC All Share Index was up at 66,200. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 70 cents to the dollar, 20 rand to the pound, and 17 rand 30 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,797 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is up at $71 a barrel. And Bitcoin has rebounded somewhat to be trading at around 460,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, Transnet announced an update on its rail and port operations, which, we, which have been affected as a result of the events that unfolded last week. The ports of Durban and Richards Bay have reported normalized levels of operations over the past two days, with all employees having reported for their shifts and Transnet are working towards clearing the backlog caused by the unrest in the past week. Miners Kumba Iron Ore and Together Resources have noted export volumes will be affected due to the delays. Netflix announced a Q2 update after the bull in New York last night. The entertainment platform met market expectations and the share was flat following the news. This marks the start of earnings season in the U.S., which will be followed with close interest. Indeed, we'll be following those uh, results very closely. In the business share portfolio, apart from Netflix, we also have Amazon, Apple, 
uh, and a, a number of other U.S. listed companies. And so this is an important time for us at this time of the year where South African investors who now quite easily can invest offshore uh, need to keep themselves appraised of what's going on in the global scenario. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, July 21st, and this is your FT News Briefing. Netflix had a sluggish second quarter, and things aren't looking up for the rest of the year either. And UBS has a new investment portfolio made up exclusively of hedge funds run by women. Plus, demand for lithium is soaring thanks to the electric car boom. Now commodities exchanges are getting in on the market with new contracts for the metal. It's very much like what happened in the oil market back in the 1970s. You know, oil wasn't traded before that time. So they're trying to sort of centralize and create a benchmark price. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Netflix was one of the big winners of the pandemic. Subscriber numbers skyrocketed thanks to people being stuck at home. But as the economy reopens, it has lost a bit of its mojo. Yesterday, Netflix said in the latest quarter it lost more than 400,000 subscribers in the U.S. and Canada. Investors were also disappointed with the company's forecast that it would only add 3.5 million subscribers next quarter. But Netflix does have a plan, and it's not just about movies and TV. The FT's Tim Bradshaw keeps a close eye on Netflix, and he tells me what he's seeing. Mainly, we've seen them make a couple of very interesting and specific hires, first of all into podcasting and then also into video gaming. So they hired a lady called Najeri Eaton, who was formerly of NPR Radio and then spent some time at Apple Podcasts. And so she's joined Netflix as director of podcast programming. Very shortly after that, earlier this month, we saw them hire a former executive at most recently, actually, Facebook in its Oculus VR unit, but previously at Zynga and Electronic Arts, a chap called Mike Verdu, who has been in the gaming industry for 30 years, and he is going to be heading up their new gaming division, their interactive division, which is something that barely existed before. Neither of these teams really existed very much before these hires over the last few weeks. So why why move into these spaces, Tim, and not just focus on streaming? Well, Netflix is by far the dominant TV streaming service, at least in the US and and most of Europe. Um, It's still got plenty of the world to sign up, but it has seen its growth slow a little over the last few quarters. And it's actually becoming a lot harder for all kinds of online entertainment to deliver the kind of growth that we've seen over the past year. So there's the sort of saturation problem that they've maybe kind of reached a a bit of a plateau in their more established markets like the US. And then there's just the fact that it's it's just going to be harder to grow at the kind of same pace that um, the industry has seen over the last few years. That and they've also got a lot of new competition coming in, people like Disney Plus and a bunch of niche uh, streaming services like uh, Mubi or Shudder. So um, there's a lot of different places that people could be signing up for their entertainment. So Netflix has experimented with gaming. For example, it it made a game and a podcast based on its popular sci-fi series, uh, Stranger Things. Do you think that long term, these forays into podcasting and gaming could move the needle for uh, for Netflix? I mean, look, they, they've got 200 million subscribers already. So I think it's unlikely that we're going to see millions and millions of people signing up suddenly because there's a new Stranger Things game as, rather than a Stranger Things series. But I think this is much more about retention. The big part that analysts and investors worry about every quarter when Netflix reports its earnings is that, you know, you'll see a large number of people just cancelling their subscription because they're waiting for the next series of something that they like to come up and there's not really any new content that they that they're excited about in in the last month or two on Netflix. And so we've seen Netflix's stock is kind of flat in the year to date. It's up only 5% over the past year, but the conversation around Netflix I think will increasingly come around to how does Netflix hold on to those 200 million odd subscribers um, when there's so much competition um, for their attention and their subscription dollars. And, and adding some podcasts and some games can only help with that. Tim Bradshaw is our global technology correspondent.
The Swiss bank UBS has launched a portfolio that invests solely in hedge funds run by women. It's called Carmen, and it'll pick about 10 to 15 funds globally where a woman has sole or joint discretion over the investment of the assets. The move comes as investors show more interest in funds run by historically underrepresented people. Right now, women make up less than 11% of senior employees at hedge funds. A senior investment officer at UBS said women had been underrepresented in this area despite a lack of evidence justifying it by skill or performance differences. In fact, during last spring's market plunge, hedge funds run by women were able to limit their losses better than funds run by men. The boom in electric cars is fueling demand for lithium, a key metal used in car and other batteries. And now the London Metal Exchange has launched a new contract for lithium. The LME says the contract is designed to bridge the need for battery and car manufacturers to hedge their exposure to volatile lithium prices. It comes a few months after a U.S. rival, the CME Group, launched a similar contract. Here's the FT's metals and mining correspondent, Henry Sanderson. Yeah, so right now there's all this demand for lithium. And, you know, car makers are trying to secure lithium, but there's no sort of benchmark pricing contract. There's not sort of one price that you can Google and look up for lithium. And it's sort of just assessed in different markets by various companies. So what the LME, the London Metal Exchange, and also the CME in New York are trying to do is create a sort of benchmark traded price. It's very much like what happened in the oil market back in the 1970s, you know, oil wasn't traded before that time. So they're trying to sort of centralize and create a benchmark price. Henry, I assume lithium also comes in different shapes and qualities. Would that be a concern for the lithium producers that different levels of quality wouldn't show in this contract? Precisely. This is what, uh, when the LME first introduced the idea to launch this contract a few years ago, a lot of lithium miners were against it because you know, they spend a lot of money or have a lot of expertise in producing different grades of lithium. Um, you know, there's so-called battery grade of lithium because you don't want any impurities in the lithium in your battery, right? The biggest issue with a battery in our electric cars is, you know, they could explode, they can, they can catch fire, right? They're very flammable devices. They're like a contained bomb in a way. So, you know, they, they spend a lot of effort trying to produce finely processed lithium and they want to get paid for that, right? But the LME has spent three years working with producers on this. And the question is, you know, have they addressed these concerns? I think a lot of lithium miners perhaps are still against it, but some are sort of coming around to perhaps the inevitability of having a traded lithium price. So is there enough room for both the LME and the CME to offer this kind of contract? Well, this is the fascinating and big question, right? I mean, the first big question is, is anyone going to use these contracts? Are car makers going to use these contracts to head their exposure? Are investors going to trade them? Are um, lithium miners going to want to use them? This is a sort of big question because it's fairly technical, but lithium is produced in lots of different types and grades and qualities. It's not sort of a simple commodity like gold or, or silver, right? So Everyone has slightly sort of different requirements. So it's a big open question whether car makers are, are going to use these contracts at all. Um, and then it becomes a question of who's going to win, the CME or the LME, or perhaps some exchange in China will pop up um, with a contract. So it's really an open question. The market's up for grabs. Henry Sanderson is the FT's metals and mining correspondent. Thanks, Henry. Thanks very much. Before we go, we have news of a French food fight. Charcuterie makers in France are not happy with a popular smartphone app called Yuka. Yuka scores a product's nutritional value after consumers scan the barcode. The Charcuterie Industry Trade Group, or Big Ham, as our Paris reporter Leila Aboud refers to it, is suing the little startup behind the app. Big Ham alleges that Yuka disparaged its members' products by giving them low scores if they contain nitrates. Nitrates in processed meats were deemed a probable carcinogen by the World Health Organization, but charcuterie makers need nitrates to make their products and lengthen their shelf life. Big Ham won its first court case against Yuka. A judge ordered Yuka to remove any mention of the health risks posed by nitrates. One of Yuka's co-founders said she plans to appeal, but added that lawsuits could bankrupt the startup if judges side with Big Ham's requests for millions in damages. 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, it's Wednesday, and that means Magnus Haystick. We've got so much to talk about, but maybe let's start off uh, with a comment that Charles Savage, and you know Charles, the, the founder of Easy Equities, that he thinks that anybody up to the age of 35 uh, would be thinking very differently about their lives. You always tell it straight, as it is. I presume you would not disagree with him. Many, many people with kids of that age are having those discussions. A lot of people with kids at that age are talking to their kids. In fact, I had lunch with my son. He's about 31, 32, and he has lived overseas for many years, and he speaks Chinese, Portuguese, Spanish, and uh, English and Afrikaans. So he suddenly said to me, Dad, should I go, should I stay? And he's a qualified CFP. And he was discussing with me whether he should go and write the exam in Britain and go and, go and, go and practice his his craft there. His wife has got a British uh, passport. So suddenly that discussion is, is, is being held in South African households where this thing is possible. So you're quite right. I listened to Charles and a lot of people are saying, you know, um, should we not educate our children and then send them abroad because you need to start thinking about plan B. So even in our household, we are having those discussions. And it wasn't on the table previously. I've, I've let my kids decide. I haven't tried to influence them, believe it or not. I, they know my views. And now suddenly my youngest son, he said, look, uh, maybe we should investigate. And previously my daughter, who's a qualified attorney and a trust specialist, was thinking maybe she should go and write the Australian exam. Or, or, or so, so people are looking at alternatives if they have experienced, they have never experienced what was hap- what happened last week. I mean, you and I, but younger, uh, older, we saw what it was like during the Soweto riots, seventy six and eighty five, and we almost kind of um, have gone through that. But I think for a whole generation of younger professionals, they could not see what they were witnessing on our TV screens last week, and it came as an absolute shock to them and said, "Wow, I didn't believe it can get so bad." We will be having a webinar tomorrow. I'll uh, have you know that the uh, business community has reacted uh, very rapidly to a little note that I sent out this morning. Last I looked, we had 1,500 registrations already. So, uh, And that's on the subject of quo vadis, as you call it, you know, where to. Just not everybody uh, who's listening to this will be able to make that webinar tomorrow. Uh, what is the thrust of, of your thesis right now about Quo Vardis South Africa? Well, I've been thinking about it and what I've been trying to read as widely as I can. And some, there was a brilliant piece by Brian Pottinger on your website yesterday, which was, which was fantastic. Moluets and Becky. And then in other media publications, and everybody is now focusing on where are we as a country right now? How did we get here? which is a whole debate by itself, and how are we going to get out of it if we're going to get out of it and what needs to be done? One now cannot just simply dismiss oh, that South Africa will never become a failed state. That would be quite foolish and short-sighted. So if you're saying my scenario planning involves the following A, B, or C, how does it affect your investment decision-making and what can you do with the assets that you have or the assets that you will earn in the future. So it's a wide-ranging debate looking at the various ways to plan for a very uncertain future. Yeah, and it certainly is something that is front and center for most thinking South Africans now. There are, however, many people who are of an age who who wouldn't want to uh, leave – well, nobody wants to leave this beautiful country – but who – would find too, that too much of a disruption. What about your clients? What are they saying to you? Well, our clients have been, um, to a certain degree, uh, uh, some of our clients, I can't put a percentage exactly to it, but 10, 15, maybe 20%, we have seen that their children have been living for quite some time and then sometimes themselves. But it's very difficult and becoming very expensive to up and leave and go and buy property in Australia, New Zealand, 
or any other part of the world for that matter. But they do say, I will educate my child as best I can. I will give him or her an, a global education, either accountancy, medical, engineering, and then they must go and start a new life uh, somewhere else with our financial support and our emotional support. That, I'm afraid, is going to accelerate quite dramatically. We have these discussions with our clients, and we often ask, we say, where is Yanni? And Yanni is in London. And Sunny? No, Sunny is in Australia. So the, the South African diaspora has been happening for quite some time under the radar. Sometimes people go and work elsewhere to make some money because they couldn't find jobs in South Africa. But a lot of them are saying they must go and they must not come back. We will support them from South Africa as a parental support. We have some capital. We will export our capital, help our kids set up property or maybe a business. And, and that will be almost our legacy to our children. And strangely enough, I spoke to someone yesterday, a black gentleman, who's doing exactly the same with for his kids. He has already... Uh, bought property in, in Mauritius. He's an engineer. And it's not a, a black and white thing. Mm. It's, 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 he said, I'm out of here. And we have Indian clients in KwaZulu Natal who've been saying the same for a long time. So people are looking at opportunities elsewhere than South Africa. I guess the, the issue that one often forgets is it isn't just a, it's not a racial divide. It's about those people who prepare to sacrifice, work harder, make something of their lives. And as a consequence of that, if they're putting in longer hours or studying more, they are going to earn more money. They're going to be middle class or better, and they are not going to want to have to sacrifice again everything that they've built up over that time. And that's that's got no race barriers. But there is an interesting point. Just after we arrived in London, we went there for three years in 2016, I met with Reg Bamford, who's a South African who started a company there called Sable. And uh, many, many years ago. And he said to me that his advice to South Africans was, you don't always have to emigrate. You don't have to go somewhere else, but your money can. So you can, you can put your money there. It can work harder for you. And is the, if there's a need, you can follow it there. Do you think that, that that philosophy is changing, that not only is your money going there, but maybe you should be thinking of going as well? We've been trying to convey that message to our clients, whom we consider to be global citizens for a long time. We, um, as a small company 10 years ago, set up our own global balance fund to give our clients exposure into the global markets at a very low cost. And that, that fund is now up to, you know, one and a half billion rand and doing extremely well, beating the big, bigger brand names because of the cost structures. So our clients have been very comfortable with our approach. It's not been panic selling. It's not being alarmist. We're just simply saying that you're a global citizen and you cannot keep all your money in one country. And it was not about politics in the early days. What intrigued me about what was happening elsewhere was Wall Street, Silicon Valley, the phenomenal innovation taking place in the United States, in Israel, in Switzerland, and I was very attracted to those investments because I saw what was happening personally. I went there a couple of times, London, New York, Los Angeles, you know, that's what we do. And based purely on statistical uh, outperformance, we said invest offshore. And, of course, we, we were attacked and attracted a lot of uh, unfair criticism. And they got it totally wrong. They said it was emotion and unpatriotic, etc., etc. Mm. It was not. It was getting good returns for my clients. And our clients, and, and I have got a number of messages last week or two saying, thank you for externalizing such a large portion of our, our, our portfolio. We now see what you mean. And uh, that, that, that story has not changed. And, and, and it's a pity that so many large companies with massive vested interest Basically, we're spinning a different story all day long, and, and their clients are paying the price today. Yeah, and, and you think about that. Many of those large companies have themselves externalized or at least attempted to externalize. But uh, you're talking about large South African companies. However, they didn't make much of a success on the other side of the water. So it's quite ironic that uh, they themselves are uh, – we're trying to – 
follow advice which they weren't giving to the clients here in South Africa. But the, the real issue, and we don't really talk about politics, you and I, we talk more about the, the impact on, on wealth. But we're at a watershed, unquestionably, in what happens in this country into the future. And one of the points that was raised by um, David Shapiro, I think it was, he says what worries him is that the ANC, after this disaster, after seeing the impact of high unemployment, how uh, short sure, was a it was a, a deliberate effort to to uh, at sedition, um, and it is it's it's got very dark undertones on what happened in the past week, but how it was so easy to get people to go into the stores and start looting, and what he's saying is, is what worries him is that this ANC government, instead of seeing the light, and instead of seeing how you address the issue of unemployment by creating jobs, by freeing the economy, is going to go the other way and double down on a system which, I did the numbers this morning, uh, has given us 18.5 million social grant recipients. And now uh, President Ramaphosa wants to add another 45 billion rand to that through a basic income grant. It it just seems as though if that's the path that's being followed on, then any rational uh, observer would have to think twice about where this country's economy might be heading. I share those sentiments because I also tweeted and said that's exactly what government cannot do is to double down on what they've already been doing and which is caused to, by and large, the massive unemployment, the unhappiness, the anger, uh, and it was all just a compendium of, of, of problems and, and which, 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 which caused this uprising, in my view, which because of social media today, a message like that gets transmitted instantaneously across multiple uh, platforms, WhatsApps, Twitter, you name it, and there's an uprising. So um, the, the, the letter that struck me, as very ominous was the one published on one of the websites, the letter by Toyota, South Africa. Um, if you know a little bit about the Japanese culture, they are not confrontational. They don't threaten. They don't want to embarrass people. You know, all those cultural traits of Japanese. But for them to write a letter like that, and it gets published to the Durban municipality and saying, guys, we are at, very close to pulling out of South Africa. That, to me, is a very, very dire warning that if it's not handled correctly, I mean, can you imagine Toyota putting out of South Africa, uh, which is a major, major investor, and that'll be the signal to other companies, LG or it doesn't matter. They might just reconsider the operations in South Africa. That'll lead to a cascade of foreign investments pulling out of South Africa. So we are. We have to consider these issues, and the way government deals with it going forward is incredibly important. What I cannot agree with, for instance, where there was a columnist in Business Day who wrote a piece yesterday, who was saying everything's fine. It's priced into the markets, and we are beginning with the rebuild of the South African economy. Blah blah blah. It was. It was actually. It was embarrassing for an economist to, to write such rubbish because right next door was a piece by Hilary Joffe who wrote this piece about the IMF doing a deep dive into what social unrest does to the, a, a country's economy. And they said, do not dismiss it as just a once-off event. It has a very deep and structural effect on uh, confidence, foreign investment, uh, economic growth, uh, which lasts for years. And, you know, I'm inclined to believe that's what's going to happen. Everybody is saying, well, look at the RAND. The RAND hasn't crashed. The, the, the smart money is they are deliberating whether to put more money into South Africa. The RAND is starting to weaken. The bond yields are starting to blow out a little bit. Our stock market is suddenly having an outflow of cash. It's the longer-term effect of what we saw on our television screens last last week, which were absolutely – Hollywood could not have done a better apocalyptic movie than what we saw on our screens happening to businesses, uh, infrastructure, 
people, big, large, small. It was just astonishing what we saw on our TV screens. I spoke to a client of mine who lives in Belita. You know, Belita, they blocked off the bridge to go into Belita. Their biggest issue weren't the looters. It was the police who came to arrest them, came to town to get, you're not allowed to do this, they were told. Here is a first-hand account, uh, and they actually told the police to bugger off. We will not obey your instructions. We outnumber you. We outgun you. Leave. We are here to protect our community, and that saved Belita. He says there were so many people trying to get across the bridge, and if they were not there, Belita would have been gutted. They were on the way to the Belita Mall. So we don't actually really comprehend what happened in KZN um, uh, last week and, and, and what it's done to the damage to the psyche, property values, factory values. It, it, it's going to take a very long time to heal. Glad you shared that story because I have uh, family coming from the province, uh, family, lots of friends, and those are those are the same uh, retorts that come back to me. Where were the police when we needed them? And in fact, when they come along, it's almost like they were uh, then attacking or perhaps participating. It was the perception anyway that they were participating with the looters and maybe they were in cahoots with the looters. There was a the best story that I heard was from uh, Jason McCormick who said, just down the road from one of their shopping centers was a police station. It's on the interview. It's worth listening to. I think he said it was 500 meters away. And as the looting and rioting began, the police station was boarded up and they all left. All the policemen went home and uh, on the pretext that they hadn't been given an increase when they last demanded one. It's this kind of issue that, 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 uh, that, that does. It, it damages the psyche and you, you start thinking, well, if you're paying your taxes to somebody who's not there when you need them most. Uh, but Magnus, just, just to close off with, when you have a look ahead into the future for your clients, when they come back to you, they say, I, I was uh, gobsmacked by what, by what happened last week. I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. Um, I have pushed money offshore. What do I do now? Do, do I just wait for the next one and hope that they, uh, that the, that, that it doesn't ever happen? Or do I find myself uh, an alternative? Uh, do I move to the Western Cape, perhaps, which seems to be uh, the, the safest route with South Africa right now? I think a lot of people are saying, look, I don't want to leave the country. Let's, let's physically move down to the Western Cape. So the Western Cape, Southern Cape will benefit. I've spoken to many people. I, in fact, I, uh, I spoke to the Valdivie people telling me the phones are ringing. Everybody's saying, what can I rent? What can I buy? Not everybody are fortunate enough to have available cash because they have to first sell the, the upcountry property before they can make the move. That's going to continue and has been continuing for many, many years. It will accelerate. Secondly, as a company, you know, we have nine offices countrywide. I had a whip, whip around the country phoning the guys and saying, how busy are you? And they all just said, we are drowning in, in new business. People are saying, I've got cash somewhere. I've got a preservation fund that I thought I'll just leave until retirement. Wherever people can ex access cash, liquid cash in retirement annuities, preservation funds, endowments, they are whipping them out. They are saying, I'm paying the taxes if I have to. Don't come with that argument that it's panic stations because it is panic stations. I want some money offshore. You know, on, on that point, one, one, one mustn't dismiss the possibility of if we have another scenario like this. You know, one, one of the implications of a state of emergency is likely that foreign exchange controls will be reintroduced. That's part and parcel of a state of emergency. Now, nobody can say it cannot have happen and nobody can say it's going to happen, but there's a possibility that it might happen. If that were to happen now with South Africa, you will feel the pain on the bond market and on the currency because that's precisely the time that you want to externalize money, but now you can't. And government does already control flow of money through pension funds and through immigration funds. So people are saying, I want, I want an estate. I want an offshore estate. Markets might be high. The rand might be strong. I don't care. This is about me and my family and my future. And I will do whatever I need to take to, to make sure that there's some kind of protection. 
Yaki Siles from the ISS is with us today. What does it stand for, ISS? Institute for Security Studies. Okay, and the last time we spoke was in August 2017 on your book, Fate of the Nation. Now, I remember, it's actually a fantastic headline. I was looking at it before we came on air. Uh, and the headline said, December holds the key, December 2017. And indeed it did. Cyril Ramaphosa uh, was a surprise winner of the uh, presidential election conference of the ANC. And Ramaphoria uh, occurred and everybody was terribly excited. However, that's been dampened over recent times and very much so in the past week. But just going back to your book, if you were to write it today, would you still have sketched those three scenarios, uh, the, the nation divided, the bad one, Bafana Bafana muddling through, and then the Mandela magic? I think generally so. Um, the, the analysis in the book, uh, Fate of the Nation, has held up very, very well. The largest error in retrospect was that I overestimated the potential of particularly the Democratic Alliance to maintain the trajectory that, uh, yeah, that its previous leader had set it on. Uh, and and the opposition politics in South Africa has been quite a disappointment. But the theme of the basic theme that South Africa is heading for a significant change, firstly in Gauteng and with the national elections in 2024, holds, as does the, uh, the main challenge that I sketched out, which is reform of the ANC. So I had a look again at the, at the book recently and read through some of the chapters, and I'm... I'm quite happy that uh, the framing that I provided still holds. And that was very deeply researched. Uh, I recall uh, your university in Denver, where you did the the, the uh, academic analysis and then applying it uh, to the reality. Yes, we use a, a forecasting platform known as the International Futures Forecasting Platform. So we, um, I converted the political scenarios into economic impacts. And we were at the time making some of the basic arguments that the, um, you know, South Africa can do much better. But uh, the idea of heading for 5.4 or whatever growth rates, which is what is in the National Development Plan, are just patently unrealistic. But that did require a deep um, and fundamental reform to get there. Of course, at the time, um, COVID was, uh, was not on the cards, um, but many of the self-inflicted um, challenges that we face on the country were clearly on the cards, uh, particularly around corruption, the challenges within the ANC. At the time, I made the distinction between what I refer to as a traditionalist faction within the ANC and a reformist faction. Um, at the time, Kosozanat um, Lamini uh, uh, Zuma was generally seen as the leader of the uh, traditionalist faction. And the main challenge, and it remains true today, is that uh, for Ramaphosa to survive and for the ANC to flourish, uh, the ANC needs deep and fundamental reform that not only takes deals with the corruption and the patronage, patronage, but modernizes the party from a rural traditionalist pathway, which is where Jacob Zuma took it, to a modern urban non-racial party. And that challenge remains inherent to the ANC today. I know you're not in the country at the moment, but if you were uh, sitting here in the middle of KwaZulu-Natal, say, and watching what occurred in the past week, would that have also aligned with your uh, analysis uh, going back four years now? Yes, it does. Um, South Africa has the largest inequality and unemployment globally. And there is only one thing that can change that over time, and that is a more rapid economic growth and employment growth in the formal sector. Um, we can grow our informal sector, but South and because South Africa, by comparative standards, has a much smaller informal sector than most countries at comparable rates of income and so on. But it is only employment growth in the formal sector that eventually reduces um, uh, inequality. Um, so... Um, uh, I, I actually just today released a, 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 what we refer to as an ISS today on security sector reform, where I uh, looked at the challenges that we face in police, intelligence and the military um, and the leadership thereof and set out a host of issues that uh, South Africa needs to engage with on on managing the inevitable instability and 
um, protests that, that we will be faced with for, for a number of years to come. But Jackie, this was not uh, inevitable protest. They might be coming. This was clearly initiated uh, by dark forces. And we know it from the interviews we were having with people at the time in KwaZulu-Natal. We see it from what the president has said. And even today, the Financial Times of London, their main editorial of the day, which addresses this issue, which gets back to what uh, you started the conversation with and what uh, was uh, spoken about in your book, the reformer grouping and the rural grouping of the ANC. One of the upsides of the book was a split in the ANC. Is is that close now? I think we're looking at a splintering of the ANC. Um, The party is a shell of its former self. Um, um, So even... Um, if Ace Mogoshule, who's now the leader of the RET faction, whichever, if he would decide he has got no real support base, uh, I think we see uh, um, the main challenge is that uh, the ordinary voters in South Africa don't have an alternative. So the main argument, which I put forward in Fate of the Nation, that people are either staying away or grudgingly voting for the ANC still holds to this day. To modernize the ANC would require a, a, a huge challenge. And this is now Ramaphosa's main challenge because the ANC has become a rural traditionalist party under, under Jacob Zuma. And it is in, uh, it will probably lose Gauteng in the 2024 national elections. Once the ANC loses Gauteng, uh, it has lost South Africa's economic and population heartland. And its future is very clear. Alternatively, will the ANC then embark it, it it probably will still be the largest party in South Africa. Will it enter into a partnership with the EFF or into a partnership with the DA? Or will, um, for example, uh, the new parties that we are seeing being established by Herman Mashaba and others, will that provide a potential partnership for the ANC? Or will the opposition parties, uh, Mashaba, DA, for example, be able to put together a governing coalition in Gauteng. 2024 is critical to South Africa's uh, future, I think. But this past week, where uh, the taxpaying citizens of the country were abandoned, were told to effectively fend for themselves, where they were shown on television uh, that the looters were unimpeded by any police uh, action whatsoever, the police just stood and, and watched on. Does that not go deep into the South African psyche and perhaps uh, wake up those who haven't been awake to the reality of how far the country has slidden? Well, um, we, you know, Ramaphosa was handed a report on the intelligence community. What is it at the end of 2018, um, December, I think, 2018, the Mufamari report. Um, but he has, he has been focusing on, firstly, on investment, um, then on economic reform. And in the meanwhile, South Africa has been hit by a perfect storm, by COVID um, and, and uh, of course, then uh, the, the uh, insurrection that we've seen. And, and those riots were instigated, but uh, the rapidity with which they spread point to these underlying deep social challenges that we face in the country. And... Um, what I think the riots tell us is the importance for Ramaphosa not only to focus on economic reform, and there is some movement on that, but also to um, look at the intelligence, the police and the National Defense Force and to restructure and orientate them to the tasks at hand. The tasks at hand are support to the police, border security and these kind of things. They are not conventional defense. They are not... Um, whichever other fanciful notions we have. And so I, I, I hope that that decision will also follow. But we face uh, significant challenges in terms of a coordinated vision of what we would refer to as the security architecture of South Africa. Who does what? Because we're trying to create, for example, a border management agency with absolutely no purpose and no support within any of the other agencies in the broader security environment. Um, and that, I think, was originally established uh, beyond Cadre and other deployment so that uh, the Guptas uh, could lay their hands and control. It was, remember, it was uh, the, the legislation was tabled originally um, under Malusi Gigaba. Uh, so um, there is really a need, I think, for a Maposa to, to really uh, place some focus on, on getting 
a grip on what's happening in the security agencies because we, we're going to have to manage the situation, even if we get economic growth going, as I think we all hope will happen uh, into the future. And, and that's going to require quite an effort from South Africa. A more pressing need, though, surely, is dealing with the instigators. Is yes. this likely to, to cause the split in the ANC, which you, you have uh, written about? I think that um, the the cha- the challenge that the um, that, that people like Ace Magashule and others have is that they don't really have a support base, um, even within the traditional uh, areas of South Africa. Um, I, I don't think so. That's why I refer to a splintering of ANC, a, a continued um, decline in support. But um, remember, government's also busy with uh, additional social grants and so on. And they are clearly doing that also with an eye on local government elections and, and national elections. But, but these, I, I don't want to belittle that because these are important issues for, for poor, poor South Africans. So ANC support will continue to decline. But Ramaphosa, remember, is the single most um, popular politician in South Africa. And the, the opposition really, they're not getting their act together. But... Having said all that, I go back to what I said a few minutes ago. Um, there are options for ousting the ANC in Gauteng or at least making the ANC dependent on what is hopefully a pro-growth alliance to turn that important province around. So you don't see a split in the ANC, but perhaps only a splintering. What, what do you yeah. mean by a splintering? I, I mean that um, so some traditional factions, some homeland, former homeland leaders may step away. So you may find the additional creation of particularly local parties, um, you know, like we've seen with um, a number of smaller parties that have come, which all have great benefits to the individuals concerned in terms of our proportional representation system. It complicates South Africa's uh, management, I should say, going forward. But I don't see something like COPE or the EFF, or if you want to go back in history, the PAC. Because I think, in a sense, um, there is no alternative center around which that can hold. It is much more local and regional parties that I think we are are seeing. I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews, and with me today is Opportune Investments founder Chris Logan. Chris, Carew, formerly CarTrack, has been on your radar for a while now, and you're one of the few South African analysts that cover the stock thoroughly, despite its outperformance over the last few years. Its label is a tech company, and it's one of the few growth companies on the JSE. But by way of background, what product or service does Carew offer to the market? Well, it's software as a service, essentially in the field of mobility. To to make it more understandable, um, they started off uh, anti theft with tracking devices and they've migrated up the value chain to give fleets coverage of all their fleets to drive uh, greater efficiencies and and greater knowledge of of where your um, mobile assets are at any particular point in time. So it's migrated up the value chain from, you know, vehicle tracking and largely aimed at, you know, anti-theft. They've grown globally, you know, moving out of the SA. Chris, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the Q1 update today, CarTrack recently moved its primary listing from the JSE to the NASDAQ, now listed under the holding company Carew, with a secondary listing on the JSE. What was the rationale behind this, and how will this benefit investors in the long term? The rationale was to lower their cost of capital. For instance, you know, uh, CarTrack used to trade at a PE of like 13, 14, where it's now, as Carew is on a PE of 36. So this has dramatically decreased the cost of their capital. It's enabled them to invest greater in growth. Um, the move to NASDAQ has also really exponentially increased the coverage. I mean, I'm sure you heard on today's call, if you listened you know, there are not, are not a whole host of international analysts covering it. Um, other benefits would include things, you know, greater stature in attracting really skilled staff. So it's been a great move. 
And at face value, the results look solid. Strong subscription growth, despite bottom line being impacted by increased operational costs. The stock has seesawed between 8% up to 5% down on the JSE today, albeit a very illiquid counter on the JSE. What caught your eye on the numbers and any explanation for the choppy share price movement? Well, at the top line, you know, the subscribers grew by 21%, which was commendable given all the COVID restrictions. Um, margins declined because they made a tremendous investment in future growth in sales and marketing and R&D. Quite a lot of this is taken through the income statement. And traditionally, there's a lag but in that they make that investment, some of it expensed, and they only see the benefit in a year or so's time. With the COVID restrictions, which have persisted longer and more intensely than they foresaw, you know, there's been a a greater disconnect with that investment, you know, that chunky investment being made. So, yeah, I think the results were commendable against the backdrop of, you know, this big investment and the COVID restrictions being more pronounced than initially thought. And hopefully this will come through and we'll see growth of well in excess of 30% at the top line. Uh, you know, which changes the dynamics. Obviously, a company that can grow 30% plus compounded is a lot more um, attractive than one at, say, 20% per annum compounded, you know, which it's been doing. And Zach Calisto founded this company from the ground, and he still owns a significant portion, around 68% of the business, and has been hesitant to sell shares in cries by market participants to create more liquidity in Karoo. Does this alignment of interest give you increased confidence? And what is your impression of Zach? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, Zach not only refused to sell, on a number of occasions he went into the market and increased his investment. Um, Look, I think he's a great entrepreneur and, you know, a tremendously well-rounded manager and founder. And um, so, yeah, look, I have great confidence in him to to build this business out over time. And, you know, if you if you stand back, this is what they are doing. It's their ambition to be the leading mobility software as a service provider. And although there have been hiccups in terms of things like COVID, which have, you know, uh, restrained their growth, that vision appears to be becoming a reality which is a powerful vision and you know you really see it when you look at some of his competitors who've been in the game for longer such as mix and eltron's netstar um you know uh some of those competitors have have started becoming almost ex-growth and Declining margins, declining profitability. Zach and and Cartrack Kuru have kept steaming ahead. So, you know, I think he's in with a great shot of realizing that very ambitious uh, vision. I think that's what you're after, you know, as as an investor. And, yeah, there's going to be short-term volatility like we've seen today in the JSE as, as, you know, where, where there's an illiquid share on the JSE. And, you know, the market looks at, say, the top line and then, the you know, the bottom line not being as strong because of this investment and growth. So it's hard to price accurately in the short term. Cartrack has had incredible success in South Africa. It's now embarking on a global growth journey. Do you think it'll be able to take market share and outperform in more competitive markets? Yeah, definitely. Look, their big thrust is Southeast Asia with Zach having moved to Singapore, you know, I think four years ago. And, um, you know, that's been hard hit in terms of the COVID restrictions restricting their growth ambitions. But that's seen as the next big arena of growth. And obviously that market, I see they put it potential addressable market there, 100 million uh, vehicles as opposed to South Africa's 10 million. So that just gives you the idea of the scale of the market. And, you know, South Africa is, is more, far more mature. So the big thing to watch will be if they can get traction in Southeast Asia because they seem to be, and, you know, that's really going to set the, 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 the share light if that comes through over time. 
And Europe's also a, a market which they've got big ambitions in. But Southeast Asia is their big bet. And apparently, uh, you know, Netstar in a, in a investor day said that that market's quite similar to South Africa in terms of what uh, customers are after. So, yeah, they're they offering and they, they, their strategy looks credible. Well, thanks for being with us tonight. And we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow, Thursday, the 22nd of July. Until then, from the Biz News team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.